I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Prospect Podcast, where we talk about the ideas that matter politics, arts and society, and with the people who are coming up with those ideas. I'm Pete Hoskin, Books and Culture Editor at Prospect, and it's a special episode for two reasons. First, we're recording it live in a biggish tent at the wonderful Hay Literary Festival. What our listeners won't be able to see, although I certainly can, is this expanse of faces in front of me. People looking on, I think, expectantly. I hope people, some people aren't dozing off already. We'll see. But in any case, it's a lovely bucolic scene. Thank you all for joining us today. And thank you also to our sort of traditional further flung listeners for, I guess, listening. Um, and the second reason it's a special episode is our guest, the magnificent Sarah Churchwell. Sarah is Professor of American Literature and the Humanities at London University, an author of several books, a brilliantly perceptive cultural commentator, and Sarah, judging by how often your name is in the programme here, uh, can we call you the reigning champion of Hay Festival? Oh, I, I think absolutely not. Um, I, <laughs> okay. I'm quite sure that there, that there are many people who deserve that title more than I do, but I certainly love to come here. Okay, an aspiring champion. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try to take everybody down. Uh, in, in any case, I think Sarah deserves a round of applause. Oh, so. Thank you very much. <laughs> I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> Um, at, at this point, I feel like I've already been going on too much when we are actually here to talk to Sarah and hear what Sarah has to say. Um, but I did just want to say a little bit about the content of this episode. So what it's about is culture, um, which is books in particular, but also kind of movies, albums, artworks, whatever. And it's also about the culture, capital T, capital C, which is this thing we all live in. We can't quite grasp it, but you know, you can almost taste it. You can almost smell it. It's, it's certainly there. And I think the questions we're going to be asking are sort of, how does small C culture affect big C culture? What relationship is there between say books and politics? Um, you know, what artworks will come to define our times? Um, and, and, and these are questions that are very much inspired by, by Sarah's latest book, which I, I actually have a copy. And for, for, for podcast listeners, I should say, I'm currently holding up a copy of Sarah's book, The Rust to Come. Um, th- this um, was came out in hardback last year, um, and I think it recently came out in paperback. Just, just came out in paperback, yeah. Great. Um, so please do buy it. Uh, you can buy it from the Hay Bookshop. I've, I've seen copies in there. Um, and it, I should say it was a prospect book of the year last year. Um, and I'm not trying to curry favour, but I really appreciated I, it. <laughs> I, I might have had something to do with that. Thank Sarah, you very so. much. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, 
uh, I'll, I'll let Sarah talk about her own book. But what this is, I think, is is a very clever uh, and sort of righteously angry account of how we've gone from Gone with the Wind to the Capitol attack on sixth of January, twenty twenty one. Yeah, it's it's a great book. Sarah, we do we do actually want to go in this podcast beyond Gone with the Wind, beyond the subject of the Wrath to Come. Um, you know, and I, I do sort of want to talk about the books and movies and things like that that future Sarah Churchills will be writing about today's books and movies. Um, but let's start, I think, with with Gone with the Wind and with your own book. Yeah. Could could you just basically give us give us the summary thesis of the Wrath to Come? How do you, how do you take your reader from Gone with the Wind to today? Mm. Well, thank you, and um, and thank you for your support of the book, which uh, I, I knew I knew you were a supporter of it, but not to, to the the degree of influence that you had wielded. So, thank you. <laughs> I, I have to do it. Much appreciated. Um, and um, and yeah, and and uh, I'm really happy to to be here and have a chance to talk about it. So yeah, the, so this book was so this you can see the people in the um, in the tent can see. Um, so you know that this is about 120,000 words, give or take, it's a 350 page book, something like that. Um, it was supposed to be a 40,000 word book. It was supposed to be a sliver of this. And I got a little bit carried away. Um, and it was because what I thought I was going to do was just do a kind of overview about the relationship of Gone with the Wind. And when I first had the idea, it was around 2017, 2018, and the, the controversy around statues and the statues controversy in the US played out in very similar ways to the way it played out here, as I'm sure many of you know. It's a little bit different because of the different historical context, but broadly analogous. So I thought I was going to do this book about about how Gone with the Wind is just a kind of way into understanding that controversy around the aftermath of the American Civil War and the legacies of white supremacy and how those had kind of created a lot of American infrastructure, not just statues, but those became, you know, a kind of symbol of it. And as I as I began um, working on it, it felt as if the the culture um, and politics and and events kept galloping in front of me and um, and it kept getting more and more relevant and it wasn't just about statues there was so much in it that was speaking to what was happening around us and in fact it kept getting invoked people were talking about it um, and it would it came up in um, in the context of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 and Donald Trump mentioned it when Parasite became the first South Korean film to win the best uh, picture Oscar and he said he wished that they would make more movies like Gone with the Wind and everybody recognized that as the racist statement that it was and indeed it is um, so it just kind of kept coming up as a lightning rod and and people would mention it but in this gestural way and it's a book that I've taught for years I know it well and also a film that I know well and I thought you know actually there is so much more that needs to be said and that's how it ended up becoming such a long book, but really my, my thesis is that, that somebody described the book at one point inaccurately, let me say, um, as a book that says that Gone with the Wind caused Donald Trump. Uh, so I just want to put that to rest. Gone with the Wind did not cause Donald Trump's presidency. That would be a profoundly stupid thing to say. And so I didn't say it. But what I think it does is explain it to a great degree. And but I think you have to go into, as you can see, a fair amount of detail to, to really grasp all of that. What I think it captures, America is good at talking about the history of our unity. We like to talk about being the United States. We are not good at talking about the history of our divisions. But And that's why they came out of the blue for a lot of people. But those divisions are real. They are very, very deep. They go a long way back. 
And so in a sense, this book is a history of the divisions in America going back to the Civil War, but using Gone with the Wind as a way into 160 years of very complex history. And how do we understand that? So it's partly a fact versus fiction. It's partly Gone with the Wind says this. The reality is that you think you know uh, um, is, you know, okay, so Gone with the Wind says slavery was good. The reality is slavery was bad. We all know that before. I didn't bother to write a book explaining that slavery wasn't good. Well, we all knew that. But but the, how bad it was and how divisive all of this was and the degree of lying that was going on and deliberate lying and myth-making that was going on and the falsifications that followed and the brutality that was inflicted on, on Americans over that 160-year period. So it's really an attempt to try to get all of that stuff into a manageable uh, um, into a manageable format. And even though the, the book is a thousand pages and the film is four hours, it's still a more manageable way than just doing kind of all 160 years. But what one final thing I wanted to do in it, and, and then I'll shut up, is that um, the other reason for using Gone with the Wind rather than just telling a summary version of that 160 years of history, which could be done, um, is that is that it seems to me, and, and this is, I think, kind of implicit in in what you want to talk about today around culture, is that is that what Gone with the Wind, both film and novel capture, I call it the story because they're actually quite similar. So if you think of the story of Gone with the Wind, it captures something beyond the events. Sometimes, you know, if we look at just documentary history, it will capture the events. But what story captures is the emotions. What story captures is the collective psychology. It captures the desires behind the myths. What drove the myths? Why did we create them in the first place? Where do the lies come from? And actually it captures a history of denialism. And that's really what the book is about. It's about 160 years of denialism. When Donald Trump came into the presidency and you know people were startled at the, at the speed with which he got Americans to agree to what was clearly an alternate reality. And we talked about that at the time. We we're like, how did he do this? Like he just got everybody to, to believe this alternate reality. But my thesis is that America has been living in an alternate reality for 160 years and he just uh, leveraged it. So at this point, I feel maybe let's take one step back and yeah. then take two steps forward. The one step back I'd like to take is um, there may be people here who haven't read Gone with the Wind. I mean, most people haven't read Gone what? with the Wind. I think more people have seen, have, have, have seen, yeah, have that's seen usually the film. my experience. Um, I mean, it's, it's probably worth saying just a short line. Mm. It's, it's a romantic vision of the old American South. Um, yeah. You talk in the book a lot about the lost cause. I yeah. mean, maybe if you just say, say yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah. So basically, yeah. And I say people do use it as a shorthand. So it is, it is a shorthand for the pro-slavery argument. The pro-slavery arguments in America predates the Civil War and also postdates the Civil War. So the Civil War was 1861 to 1865. The pro-slavery argument, of course, in the run-up to it was the South's justification for enslaving human beings. And they had a couple of justifications that are actually in contradiction with each other, but that didn't matter because they just wanted their justifications. Um, but the justifications boiled down to the idea that there was really nothing wrong with American slavery. It was a benign system of servitude um, voluntarily entered into. They actually, um, Margaret Mitchell uses the phrase throughout the novel, she uses the phrase willing slave, which is what you call an oxymoron, right? Um, and, and this idea that people voluntarily preferred slavery, that was what they said, was African-Americans preferred to be in slavery. And that was how they justified it. They said it was a good system and a paternalistic system and a safe system. And, um, and they also said, of course, that black people were, were inherently brutal and brutalized. And therefore they also, so on the one hand, it's a benign system. On the other hand, it's protecting white people from the potential rapacity of black people. So there are these different justifications. And then after the Civil War, when the South lost, the United States was faced with this problem of 
it, it's one thing if you defeat an external enemy. It's a totally different prospect. Um, <laughs> Thank if, you. You're welcome. If you if you if you've defeated an internal enemy and and you're insisting that they stay within the nation. Remember, the civil war was fought over the fact that the South wanted to secede, and the North said, "No, you have to stay here. You have to remain part of this country, and we're going to make you change your way of life," which was how they looked at it. So you have this problem about how you're going to reconcile, and the way that the United States reconciled was with this collective myth that became known as the Lost Cause, which was the idea that the South, the Old South, was a noble way of life. So it enabled the South to save face, and the North to to sort of uh, to complicit to be complicit in this and to agree that there was actually nothing wrong with what happened anyway and so you can come back into the fold um and and the nation can can reconcile and the way the nation reconciled was with this fantasy version of the antebellum south that said that it was a beautiful gracious place with chivalric gallant men we all know this image of the cavalier in the south and fair ladies and it was all very gentle and gracious and there was just this one small problem that was human enslavement. Um, and then try to push that to one side as much as, as, as they could. So, but then if you do have to talk about slavery, just say there was nothing wrong with slavery. And that's basically what the lost cause was. The idea that the South went to war to, de to defend a noble way of life instead of going to war to fight for their right to keep enslaving other human beings to get the fruits of their labor. And actually because they wanted to expand slavery westward. It was a military expansionist imperialist project um, which is something that gets left out of a lot of our popular accounts of it and something I talk about in the book at some length because it's really important. Um, and so the degree to which they actually wanted to defend and expand the system of plantation slavery because they needed more land. It's an, ag it's an agricultural agrarian system. So they wanted to move westward and make more state slave states. So the, the Confederacy set itself up to be a, an expansion of slavery and that's what they were um, that's what they were uh, uh, committed to doing. And then after they lose, they romanticize that point of view and engage in a, in a very, very deliberate, self-conscious act of revisionist history and mystification of why they went to war and what it was all over. And they denied that it was about slavery. They said, we did not go to war over slavery, although they had speeches before the war saying we're going to war over slavery. Right. And then four years later, they're like, well, it wasn't about slavery. You know, so it's so it's it's and then the legacies of that. So it's unpacking the yeah. legacies of that. So Gone with the Wind is the is the kind of final last uh, m most familiar version of that story about uh, about the old South, the idea that it was a that it was a perfectly fine way of life. And it was the Yankees who came in out of out of envy and ruined everything because we were and I'm from Chicago, so I identify with the North here. Um, and, um, and so we were envious of the of of their wonderful, gracious way of life. And that, that's why we went to war. Sorry, you, you've said- Not true. Um, <laughs> sorry, you, you said that the wrath to come, what it does not do is say that Gone with the Wind caused Donald Trump. Mm. And I'm, I'm very glad now that I didn't describe it. Thank you. Quite so perfectly. <laughs> um, but also, I, I mean, reading it, it's, Gone with the Wind is something more than a device here. Mm. Like you're not just you're not just telling a history that's totally apart from Gone with the Wind. No. Um, and the word I think you've you've used this word already. You've used the word story. Mm. You've used the word myth. Mm. And and what stood out for me from the book actually was the phrase myth making. Mm. Um, and actually, you know, Gone with the Wind is interwoven with this this your own story that you're telling here, this own history. And and the ways it's interwoven is is the myth that America tells itself. Yeah. You know so. It does have influence here. Gone with the Wind is not incidental 
to what's going on. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, And so it is, and that's why it was important to come to grips with its detail and how it works and what it does and what the story is saying. And the ways in which the more you look at it, the more you realize it's capturing all, all kinds of elements of American political culture and of our ideas about ourselves. These collective fantasies is what I think it really captures. And those, those go well beyond the, the Old South and the idea that, um, that America, you know, that, that, that American slavery, you know, that basically it's that America is so innocent and so exceptional that even our system of slavery was great. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of attitude. And, but it, it, it goes well beyond that. And I, and I think that one of the things that Gone with the Wind does is it, um, it, it tells, it's the, it captures what I call the Genesis myth. Um, so the myth of origins of the, of the idea of American white victimhood that the real victims of the American Civil War were white people. That's actually what Scarlett thinks. Um, And that's what all of the people around her think, that they're the victims of the war that they started in order to keep enslaving humans. But what happened after the war was that the, um, the, and and this this often confuses people, but it's one of the key things about how America works, um, is that the, we think, and I, I was joking a minute ago about being from the North and how we're the virtuous side, but now I'm going to strip the veil from that because, of course, that's not true. And we, we were marginally better, but, uh, but only marginally. And, um, and the, the problem was that uh, for a lot of the, um, the Union side, um, and of course, they weren't, it wasn't the abolitionist army, it was the Union army. They went to war to hold the Union together. A lot of them did not go to war at first to abolish slavery. That was a, a kind of secondary consideration for many uh, of them. But then eventually, certainly there were many people who did want to abolish slavery passionately. But the problem was, is that you could want to abolish slavery and still be racist. You could think that slavery was wrong, but that black people were inherently inferior to white people. And so, and, and that was actually a straight up, it was a pretty straightforward position. It didn't require much cognitive dissonance. It was just slavery is what's wrong here. Um, and so what happened was they emancipated 4 million African-Americans and then did nothing for them, just did absolutely nothing and said that emancipation was the job and we've done it like all, job over. So you have 4 million people who have been systematically denied education or uh, any kind of developed skill set. So they've been given only the most primitive skills to work the land or to work in the house. And, and then you set them free and you say, you're on your own. We're not going to give you money. We're not going to give you land. We're not going to give you education. We're not going to redistribute property, wealth, anything. And the Southerners who went to war get to keep all of their lands. They get to keep everything except the human property. So they have no other consequences for starting this war. I mean, there was huge economic devastation as a result of the war. Um, but, so, but that consequence w- was kind of incidental. There was no other punitive consequence for them. Um, and then African-Americans were just left to, to you know, try to build a life. And they couldn't because they had absolutely no ability to do so by and large, some did of course, but um, but the vast majority were not able to. And that legacy is still with us. And so one of the things that I'm doing in the book is tracing through a lot of those legacies, how they how they came about after the war, how Gone with the Wind then is, is it the epitome of the way that we lied about what happened after the war. And, um, and then the ways in which the reality of what happened after the war is now clashing with those myths. And that's what I think is happening is that our national myths are no longer sufficient to make sense of our very chaotic reality. And that's why violence keeps flaring up and why people are so bewildered. So, you know, and, and one of the things I say about the book is that I'm afraid it is kind of, it's bad news. I mean, it's like, it's, you're gonna, there are things in this that are horrifying, but my position was that was, as I, as I dug into this and realized it was even worse than I thought. And I thought I knew how bad it was and I didn't. And the more I uncovered, the worse it was. And, and, then, and then it was like, well, you, you, 
you're going to be horrified either way, but you can either be horrified and bewildered, or you can be horrified and understand what's going on and why it's happening. And for me, that is a preferable, a preferable place to be in, which is really why I wrote the book, to try to explain it to my own satisfaction. Is there not something slightly hopeful there, though? Because you, you now say today we're clashing with these myths. After the break, we'll talk more about how culture influences the culture. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, and, and I'd imagine, in, in fact, let's just ask the question. Um, I imagine very few people have read Gone With The Wind nowadays mm. and fewer people are watching it. Yeah. Um, and so in this audience, this audience is not Carolina. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, but you know, like, um, who who's read Margaret Mitchell's novel Gone with the Wind? Yeah, just a handful. Okay, so for podcast listeners, I guess that's like five percent of people. Yeah. And and who's seen the movie? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay, yeah. that's more like sixty percent, seventy percent. Oh, I would say higher than that. Yeah, that's okay. most of the room. But presumably, over time, those numbers will dwindle. Yeah. And are already dwindling. And where Gone with the Wind pops its head up every so often in America when it comes on TV. It's a controversial thing. Yeah. In fact, it was taken off streaming services recently. It's, you know, and people are hitting back against these myths. Is that not a positive thing, even though it, this is sometimes a violent, disputatious, polarised kind of argument? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, I think it's hopeful because that's what we're fighting over, right? Yeah. Is we're fighting over the fact that the United States has never been a full multiracial democracy. And that's just a fact. It has never been. There was a period where it got closer but there has always been active voter suppression of African-Americans. It's happened immediately after they got the vote. Black men got the vote before black women. And the, they began systematically finding ways to deny them the exercise of the franchise that they had been granted. And that's just demonstrable. It's factual. I go into great length in the book to show 
um, how that worked and, and why we know it's absolutely the case. And we never got to a point where we had a full multiracial democracy. We were on that trajectory. Um, and now we're in, in my view, in a massive backlash against it. Again, and we have these regular recurring backlashes, but I think it's three steps forward, two steps back. We are inching toward progress. We are inching toward a multiracial democracy. And I think we will get there. And that's precisely why the vote, uh, why the fight over this is so violent, um, because that is where we're going. But but we can't ever be complacent about that. And we have to it is a it is a fight and we have to absolutely join in that fight. And and it is going it is going to be more violent, in my view. Um, I think uh, I I genuinely think um, that there is a case to be made that America is currently in a state of undeclared civil war that we are having another civil war and it's undeclared. But the, and the reason I say that is because we don't fight wars with armies mustered on the battlefield anymore. That's not how it goes. You know, we don't have cavalry anymore. Um, and even in Ukraine, um, you know, it's, it, 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 that's not how they're fighting that war. And, you know, we have armed militias roaming the streets of the United States, occupying government buildings. And then, you know, we had an insurrection for heaven's sake. Um, so the, so I, I think there is, a, there is a case to be made that, you know, historians looking back may be like, yeah, that was, that was a civil war. And, you know, we can, uh, you know, it's, I, I'll, I'll need, um, uh, you know, Anthony Beaver or um, Lawrence Friedman to set me straight on how we know if we're in a war or not. Um, I'm not a military historian, but it seems to me that there, that there is, there is a, we, we need to understand the severity of the violence that is going on um, in, 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 in real terms. And I think we need to confront it directly. Um, and if we're not in a state of civil war, we're damn close to it. Sorry, okay. Sorry, so now, I just frightened now everybody. I, now, now I feel terrible. I'm like the voice of doom. I'm actually a really nice person. I'm usually really cheerful, but but right now this is just like this really bad things are happening. And as I say, but they'll be happening. With, there's a great writer called Paula Fox, who some of you might know, and she wrote a she wrote a terrifying children's book uh, called The Slave Dancer, in which a in which a, an older man says to a kid who gets kidnapped onto a slave ship and says, um, uh, ter terrible things are happening, but they'd be happening whether you look at them or not, so you may as well look at them, <laughs> which I think is like, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I can feel the mood in the room has deflated. Sorry. Uh, and, and, and <laughs> I'm, my, like, I'm the prophet of doom. My no, but mood. there is hope. And we, as I yeah. say, we can be hopeful about it. We're going to win. I mean, we are going to win. We are winning. Um, <laughs> the mood is rising. The, <laughs> I mean, that's the point, right? Is like, is like, you know, we know that we're winning because we are moving, because people are getting angrier and angrier about voter suppression, because people are not turning a blind eye to it, because they don't think it's acceptable. Where 100 years ago, they thought it was fine. They didn't have any problem with it. So there is progress. There is demonstrable progress, because more and more people find this a totally unacceptable way for a so-called democracy to behave and will not turn a blind eye to it. We know we have hope because we did have the first black president. We are just now living with the violent backlash against that. But that was progress. And, you know, I was I did an event with Bonnie Greer the other day. Many of you will know Bonnie, of course, you know, African-American, also from Chicago like me. And um, somebody asked her at, at the event what was Obama's um, greatest achievement as president. And she said his greatest achievement was that he walked out of the White House alive. Um, which I absolutely think is right, um, but he did, and we had that progress, and so and so now we're in a state of backlash, so we feel the full force of that backlash, um, but that doesn't mean that we're not making progress. Um, Sarah, my my mood, my own mood is deflated for a slightly different reason, uh, which is that uh, you've more or less just said that America is in a state of undeclared civil war. And yet I'm going to have to steer the conversation away from that bombshell and on to, <laughs> away from Gone with the Wind. Call it a hypothesis. I don't have to say that we definitely are. I just okay, think well, it's I, I will take we, us away will... from that 
we will talk about something else. And um, <laughs> away from Gone with the Wind, in mm. fact, and towards other cultural artifacts, we might call them other books, mm. movies, whatever. Um, and I think actually, let, let's stick with Gone with the Wind in a slightly more metatextual, mm. above it all way. What What are the qualities of a of a book or a movie? Do you think that make it influential? Mm. That you know? Yeah. I do know, but if I knew the answer to that question, I would write a book that was, uh, because, you know, Gone with the Wind remains one of the best-selling books of all time yeah. and one of the best-selling books of the 20th century. So if I knew if I knew how to make a book that influential, I would go do it. You would also uh, make a lot of money. I yeah. would definitely do that. <laughs> yeah. um, and, um, and, I would, and I would try to influence, you know, for the good. Um, so I, I think that is, it's always the $60,000 question, is that is that people want to, I don't know why I dropped four grand off of that $64,000 question. Anyway. Um, the but people always want to know you know kind of what's the key to it and and the only way i can answer it is by redescribing it but it's to say that what it what it does by definition obviously is that it struck a chord it strikes a deep emotional chord and what it does is it is it finds resonance um with in this case not just a particular moment one of the things that's very interesting about gone with the winds popularity is that its popularity crosses cultural and linguistic borders in ways that we might find surprising this is a pro-slavery book and it was deeply popular with the free french um uh, it was the most popular book on the french underground and the nazis banned it um and it was popular with the free french because it is a story that understands itself to be about resisting an occupying army and so if you have an occupying army, it is a book that you can deeply identify with. And you just have to not think about the fact that it's pro-slavery, which people are pretty good at doing. And so they just kind of compartmentalize that, put it to one side, don't really think about that. And they connect with the emotions of it. So it's a book about survivalism. It's a book about defiance. It's a book about hope. It's a book about uh, uh, refusing to admit defeat. Um, it's, a, it's a book about, you know, in that sense, it's about the stubborn human will and it's a book about survival of the fittest, so it absolutely uh, struck a chord um, in a deep in a, at a time that was deeply eugenicist. Um, so it, it, there are all of these ways in which it's in, on an emotional level, it still works. You have to just not stop and think about what it is that it's actually saying and whose side it's actually on, because it is. I say in the book, and I believe this, it is like reading a book and thinking, um, you know, I, I I'm deeply identifying with this person, and I admire their resilience and their refusal to admit defeat, but the person in question is a Nazi. And the person in question never, ever, uh, uh, has ever repudiated fascism. This is, the, this is a worldview in which we're, we're meant to, to, to see everything from Scarlett's um, point of view. And, it, and it's very successful at doing that. Um, Scott Fitzgerald worked on the film for, uh, for a few days um, before he was fired. And um, he, he wrote a letter, uh, a couple of letters actually about Gone with the Wind um, when he was working on it. And, um, and he said that um, he, he, he was surprised by how competent it was as a piece of writing. And he thought, because, you know, Margaret Mitchell was a journalist. She knows how to write. Um, and it is a, it's a highly readable book. And it is um, and it's funny in places which people don't um, expect intentionally funny. I mean, there are some terrible, not unintentional a bit like Willing Slave, which is sort of mordantly funny. Um, but but Margaret Mitchell had a very acidic sense of humor, and there and the the book is is much more satirical than people think it is, and it has and, and it's very satirical about Scarlet, and it's and I think there are bits of it that are very funny. It's also an anti-war book. It is anti-war. It has its politics are deeply deeply troubling um, and really problematic, but it is anti-war, and it is um, absolutely about the cost 
to the home front of war and the cost to women of war. So there are things that it does that that people connect to that are perfectly redeemable, um, and that and you know things that I still like about it and that I still um, enjoy about it. But we have to separate um, these things out. So I think that you know for for a book to have that kind of that kind of influence, it has to it has to connect to something urgent in mm-hmm. that way. And that's very hard to predict and it's very hard to do systematically. That she had no idea this book was going to be the hit that it was. It just, it just ran was. away, yeah. yeah. That, that notion of striking a chord is interesting yeah. um, because it does make me wonder whether novels in particular in a place to do that, like they they can reach the emotions in a way that, uh, broad brush here, but you know, that often nonfiction can't. Mm. Um, and obviously there are many, many non-fiction books that have been hugely influential. Mm. Um, you know, we could talk about Mao's Little Red Book or something, mm. you know, like that there are strange documents that have left mm. their imprint on modern society. Um, but but do you think the novel might be in a, in a better place to strike that call to really yeah. get home with people? I do. I think, you know, I, I often, um, I, I think it's a remarkable thing that, and I talk about this sometimes with other professors of, of literature and, and I've talked about it with, cognitive scientists and linguists as well. Um, we all do this thing that is reading and none of us knows how it works. Like we don't know how it works. We don't know how those black marks on a page translate into words that translate into concepts that go into my brain. We don't know what makes all of, it's an alchemy. And we're, I always say we're like, um, we're, li- we're like, uh, um, you know, a, a kind of farmers, you know, uh, you know, prehistoric farmers who know that the who know that the that the sun and the rain will make a seed grow, but don't understand photosynthesis. Have no idea actually why it works. They just know that it does, and we operate that way with reading. But so one of the things that reading does is that you internalize, is that you and in a way that I don't anyway. I'm not you say we're not going to universalize everybody's experience here, but certainly for me when I watch film and I love films, but when I watch a film, it's like watching the world. It's how I see the world. I'm seeing other people doing other things, and that's like watching the world. And so it's an external experience. But when I read, it's an internal experience and it shapes my interiority. It shapes my imagination. It, it shapes the way that I, certainly at least for the time that I'm reading the book and you incorporate the emotions of the book. So, you know, I think about something like To Kill a Mockingbird where, you know, uh, people absorbed Atticus Finch as a kind of moral standard that they internalized and measured their own behavior against. And that's partly because many people grow up reading To Kill a Mockingbird. So they're also young adults when they read it. And so they're forming their sense of moral standards and then they absorb him as this um, as this kind of standard bearer. And that's why when Ghost Set a Watchman came out, you know, which was the earlier version of, of To Kill a Mockingbird that was published um, just before Harper Lee died, um, and it reveals that Atticus Finch is a racist. And, um, and, and millions of people were horrified, right? And I think it's because, because we do, we take it in in a different way. And so they felt there was a personal sense of betrayal because these are people that we live with on the inside, in a, I think, in a different kind of a way, but in a way that, as I say, I can't really, I can't really explain. I just know that it happens. And the, the best example um, that I know of um, is actually the polar opposite of Gone with the Wind, but another American book that was hugely influential called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, and Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course, an anti-slavery book that, you know, the apocryphal story, it is apocryphal, unfortunately, but the apocryphal story that Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe and said, so you're the little lady who caused this great war. Um, and although it's an apocryphal story, that was certainly the sense at the time that Uncle Tom's Cabin was the proximate cause 
that it changed people's minds and made them realize that the slavery that they had been turning a blind eye to was completely immoral. And it absolutely radicalized the nation. It radicalized middle-class women, which is what she set out to do mm -hmm. and said, slavery is tearing families apart. This is wrong. It's unchristian and it has to be stopped. And, um, and, and the novel did that in a way that, um, and also theatrical adaptations did it, but those were live. Right. Yeah. Um, in a way that that I think we would be. Well, I was about to say we'd be hard pressed to think of a movie that did that, but actually I can think of a movie immediately that did that, um, which is The Birth of a Nation, which is the other one. Right. So which is part of what I tell in this uh, in this story. We should, we should also here. say there, Sarah, so that's the D.W. Griffiths yeah. movie, yeah. the biggest movie of its time. Yeah, 1915. And um, and that's based on a novel called The Klansman. Um, by Thomas Dixon, which Margaret Mitchell grew up reading and loved. Um, and um, and then the birth of D.W. Griffiths was the son of a Confederate colonel. And so he grew up with all this lost cause mythology. And he was, I'm sorry to say, a dyed in the wool card carrying white supremacist. And I mean, like explicitly white supremacist. And um, and the and that's what Birth of a Nation is is the is the is the glorification of the story of the of the creation of the Ku Klux Klan, and the idea that the Ku Klux Klan saved America, and that's the birth of the nation is the, is the proper white supremacist nation that was born with the Ku Klux Klan. So it's a totally pernicious uh, 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 story, and and um, and it's a filthy movie in all kinds of ways. But it was incredibly popular, and it led directly to the rebirth of the Klan. So the second, the Klan was moribund. It had been defeated in 1871. That was the first Klan, which came immediately after the Civil War. And it was gone, and um, and the film sparked a revival, and the Klan has never left us since. So the birth, and, and people died as a result. Many people have died directly as a result of that film, for example. Perversely as well, actually, Birth of a Nation set much of the template for Hollywood. It's uh, not yeah. just in terms of content, but form as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like it, it made the modern feature film and yeah, modern it was, techniques of editing. It was, yeah, exactly, thing. exactly. It was, it was the first epic, um, yeah. really. I mean, there had been other, you know, long form narrative films, but it's really kind of the first big scale epic film. So technically it's a huge achievement. Yeah. Shame about the story. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've, you've, you've nodded towards this already, but you know, like, does change always have to be bad? When, when, a, when a book has influence, can the influence be for the good? Yeah, absolutely. As I say, I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin, I think, yeah. is, a, is a very good example of that. Um, the and, and so is To Kill a Mockingbird, right? I mean, the fact that Atticus Finch, who's a fictional character, is really racist on the page doesn't change the fact that millions of people read To Kill a Mockingbird and learned from it to rethink racial attitudes and to think about the moral positions that Atticus Finch was taking in To Kill a Mockingbird, and they absorbed that morality. Um, the, so, so certainly it can be, and um, and I think that there are fiction educates in all kinds of ways that go beyond the overtly didactic, mm -hmm. um, and and as I say, it, it it can shape how we look at the world. It can give us ideas that we never had. It can, I mean, you know, I, I not everybody feels this way, but I love Henry James, and this is a niche taste, but um, but I do really like him, and and the reason, and one of the reasons that I love reading James is because. I feel when I'm reading James that I'm inhabiting the mind of a genius. It's like having a prosthetic brain. Like I get a better brain for the pages that I'm reading Henry James. Like this is what it's like to, to have a Henry James brain. This is amazing. And then I have to put it down and I only have my own brain, you know, at that point. And, but, but you don't just lose it, right? You do gain these appreciations. You do gain these insights and, and say, well, actually I know so much more about, about people and, and, um, and, and, oh, he's just, he's got such an incredibly subtle brain. And, um, and I, and I love that books can help you think in a different way, you know, in a way that I'm not capable of thinking on my own. 
them down the toe. Now, I, I rather regard coffee as a pathetic brain. Yeah, so. there is that. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of caffeine. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, well, should should we start? Say, should should we bring this forward hmm. and address this question I mentioned at the beginning of what what books, what movies, what paintings, whatever, will future Sarah Churchwells be looking at and saying that was a gone with the wind for for good or bad hmm. um, from now or. Or before now, the seventies, yeah. the eighties, and nineties. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. It's a tricky one. I mean, I'd be really interested in the audience's thoughts on this. But I, um, I, I mean, I because I tend to see I tend to see it more um, in terms of the ways in which it's easier to see the ways in which culture is reflecting the moment rather than the ways that culture is shaping yeah. the moment going forward. Because that's very hard to see. Um, but I, I, I suspect that. I mean, look, we know, for example. Um, that the the fictions, uh, the novels that are uh, uh, together telling the story that is known as great replacement theory are having a huge political influence right now. Steve Bannon and other people are touting them, and of course, this is the idea, right? That that um, that there's a conspiracy led by uh, um, George Soros mostly, but by but you know, choose your own Jewish financier. So it's a deeply anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that that, but it's also just straight up racist that says that there's a conspiracy for Jews and brown people to replace white people in Western society. Um, now, that conspiracy has a name and it's called biology. Um, it's demographics. Um, that, so, but this idea that somebody is in charge of that, it's like, anyway, uh, nobody's, nobody's making that happen. It's just happening because people are having sex. Let me explain to you how this works. Um, but um, so demographic shifts are occurring. Um, and people are, you know, there are people who are who are deeply threatened by that because they can see that they're losing their grip on power. In a representative democracy, you need people who look like you if you if that's how you want to organize the world. Um, so uh, so we know that those kinds of stories are hugely influential and that people believe them. Um, you know, use an example like Dianetics, right? L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, um, you know, is Tom Cruise changing the world? I don't know, but his, those ideas certainly. Get, so L. Ron Hubbard, um, I, I do wonder whether speculative science fiction is changing the world, mm. because actually there's a, there's a novel, I forget its name, by Jean Racaille, mm. um, mm. a French novel, which is very influential with St Steve Bannon, yeah. and it's a yeah. sort of great replacement yeah. theory, and yeah, that, exactly. that's a work of science fiction. It's something, there's something um, in the camp, it's yeah. something camp, yeah, um, I always forget the name of it too. But, but, but even even in in terms of the positive, you know, like you look at Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, mm. that gave us mm. the, the the phrase and sort of the idea of the metaverse mm. and Neuromancer, um, right, which what became the Matrix. Cyberpunk. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, um, and he certainly, you know, invents. Yeah, he invented a lot virtual reality in that book. And, and, and that's a great book, by the way. If you haven't read Neuromancer, it's terrifically well written. Another good book, but more recent, is um, Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future. Yeah, I haven't read that yet. Yeah, um, so that that is actually being debated in like genuine political circles. I, if people have read this, there's this idea of a carbon coin, mm. um, which it effectively comes down to paying businesses to reduce emissions uh, and paying them big money. So it becomes good business to be clean, um, and it's quite a simple idea. <laughs> but like literally, this is this is being talked of in global policy forums. Um, and it was on. It was one of Barack Obama's books of the year, mm. maybe last year, the year before. Mm. Which, which I, I also wonder. Side note: I wonder if being on Barack Obama's books of the year list <laughs> gives you political influence. I would think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a nice place to be. Um, yeah, no, you know, and you can think about the the sort of. We know that there are that there are films that have uh, that have inspired violence unintentionally, unlike the uh, Birth of a Nation. 
Um, you know, think about John Hinckley and Taxi Driver or, uh, you know, the, the ways in which there have been copycat, uh, you know, uh, um, acts of violence, uh, you know, following a film that somebody's seen. But, um, you know, I think, I mean, for me, if, it, if, if you ask about, you know, the Sarah Churchwell of 100 years from now, the, the things that, I, that I'm interested in are, are the, as I say, the ways that, that, cult, that, that a cultural artifact, for lack of a less scholarly word, um, can help us can help us read a moment. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, the, the, it is inescapable that American culture right now is only telling stories, uh, in terms of film anyway, the overwhelming majority of the stories that it's telling are cartoon character, you know, superhero stories, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, so, so what do I know for, I know I've got a really infantile society. Mm-hmm. I know I've got a society with great anxiety about patriarchy. I know I've got a society with great anxiety about power, straight up. Um, I know I've got, so, so there are things that I know about a society that keeps churning that stuff out and that loves it. Um, and, and, and for me, those are the kinds of, I'm, I'm interested in those kinds of like, you know, litmus test texts. I feel like the Marvel fans have just left the tent. I know, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these two guys have just walked out. They're like, oh. We're in hay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I, I, w- I would also, as so one of my own, specialist interests I guess because this is what I do I invite people onto podcasts and then let's talk about the stuff I'm interested in um, is, is gaming actually yeah I, th- I think that would be something that you can't avoid if you're you're mm. commentating on the culture today's culture in 100 years time yeah no I think um, you're absolutely right and I and I don't I've, I've never yeah it's my confession I have never played I have never played a computer game. I like the last one I played was like Pac-Man or something. Do, do you um, want me to try and convince you from a fairly pretentious angle? Well, no, so I don't actually require convincing of its merits. I don't. Right. Um, I, I'm absolutely convinced that it is great storytelling and that mm. people love it and that it's shaping people, people's imagination. I'm fully persuaded by that argument and I see it happening. Um, I just haven't myself done it. Um, but the but I did watch um, The Last of Us mm. Um and and I was and I was really struck in reading about it afterwards. The degree to which um, the uh, critics, you know, writing about it, were talking about the way in which it it stuck closely to the plot of the game. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's I thought it was tremendous storytelling. I thought it was excellent. So that might be the one that we. Although I think it would. I think I think the I think difference it between <laughs> the, I think the difference between the game and the TV show is actually what you just said mm-hmm. is the the game involves involvement and and this yeah. is my slightly pretentious point is mm. i think with gaming and actually elsewhere we're just seeing the rise of what used to be a very rare thing which is a second person narrative yeah so you yeah you know um there were those i don't know people played game books in the 80s fighting fantasy books but you are the hero yeah you know and, and the idea of an authored experience which actually you're controlling at the same time and imprinting yourself on it is something that's quite new yeah. used to be tremendously experimental and now it's just there. Yeah. It's like millions of people are doing it. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the biggest sort of cultural changes we're living through. I think it is. And, and but what, you know, and, and having said that, I am persuaded by the virtues, the narrative and creative and imaginative virtues of, of those kinds of games. I am also persuaded that they, that that means that people are internalizing uh, um, permissive, uh, um, profound violence. Yeah. Um, that's most of my understanding. Is most of the games are deeply violent games in which you become the killer, yeah. right? Um, so I'm not sure for society that that is something that I particularly welcome. Certainly in America, uh, I think we're seeing the effects of that. You know, with these you know people running around toting AR-15s is partly because this this you know the macho culture is upheld by some of that stuff. So um, you know. 
I personally would sacrifice games if it would get guns off the streets of America. Um, but you know, it's not a choice we have to make. But so I think can we can we, can we, can, we can we make can we make games that are not about people shooting each other? Like some people do. I know, but they're, um. they're not very many of them, are there? Oh, quite a few. Okay, I, I think I think okay, at this good. point I'm glad, it, to, I'm become, glad to know that it would become okay. it would become a separate podcast if yeah, you get me I want one of game those. recommendations. I, I want, so. Yeah, I'll, I'll play one of those that doesn't involve me picking up a gun and shooting people. Um, I don't. That's, a, that's an experience I don't want to have, and I don't want to imagine having. Play the new Zelda game. Okay. Tears of the Kingdom. Thank you. Wonderful, Sarah. Thank you very much. I think another round of applause. Oh, thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for that. Right. What a tremendous day that was in Hay. My thanks to the festival itself, but especially to Sarah for being such a wise and witty guest. Her book is The Wrath to Come. Do pick up a copy. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then grab a copy of the latest issue of Prospect magazine, which is on newsstands now. It includes our cover story, The Prince vs. the Press by Tom Lamont, which tells the inside story of the bitter battle between Harry and the newspapers that hounded him, and how the phone hackers of the past have switched sides to help him. Plus... Writing from Laura Barton, David Willits, Donald McIntyre, and many more. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Sarah Collins, and Mike Brearley. It's honestly a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.